please remain standing for the reading of today's passage. It comes from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the immeasurable riches that you have poured out on us by your Holy Spirit. We, along with creation, yearn for your Son to return to make straight what has been broken and to once and for all rid your creation of sin and death. Until that day, thank you that we have been given your Spirit in order, to, in order that we might live as faithful and holy witnesses in our city and in our state in our nation and to the ends of the earth. May all that we say, do, and think glorify you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ryan. Well, welcome back, folks. Did you have an interesting week? Is there anything going on? Hey, before we jump into today's message, if you do have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 1. We are going to be in that very passage that we just read. But before we do that, we're going to turn this into a prayer meeting. We're going to pray for our country. Pray for our countrymen. Would you do that with me? Join your hearts, bow your head, close your eyes. Father in heaven, we come humbly before you this morning. And God, we recognize that we are people of little means. But Lord, we recognize that you have all the resources of the kingdom. And God, we want our states to be united. But the fact of the matter is, Lord, we're so divided in so many ways. And we do pray for unity. We pray for healing for our nation. But most of all, Lord, we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. Because what will really bring people together is the royal son of God who steps out of heaven and claims this kingdom as his own. And so today, Lord, we pledge ourselves between this time and that, that we will do everything we can to be a light of the gospel and the truth of the gospel in this culture, which is dying, which is darkened. Lord, would you raise up the church today? Would you raise up our fellow believers and churches across this country to be lights and beacons of the gospel of truth? And may we have a transformational impact on our country. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as we said last week, the purpose of our book, the purpose of this time in this book, this series is called The Relentless Gospel, The Church, and the Unstoppable Mission of God. Today we're talking about the mandate, the means, and the mission of that. But the purpose is to strengthen our conviction and our faith, the conviction and the faith of the reader. By documenting, he wants to document the birth, the development and growth, and the global expansion, the global expansion of the church in the world. And that is due to two things. The bold and unhindered proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And also the people who do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. People have been empowered to go out into the world and boldly proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now last week we learned 
that Acts strengthens our conviction and our faith by reading, by reading the book, or coming to church and having the book read to us. It also reminds us that the gospel is central to the entire book. Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is central to that book. And it also reminds us it helps to provide evidences, convincing proofs concerning that truth. And so that's what we learned this week. This week, uh, last week, this week we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 and unpack a couple of things. One is the mandate and one is the mission. Let's look first at the mandate. This is while he was at the table with them. While he was at the table with them. Now most of your translations may not say it this way. They may say something like, uh, while he was with them. So I have translated it, while he was at the table with them. Because the word sunalidzo that he uses here, uses this Greek word called sunalidzo, and this word literally means to share salt. Have you ever shared any salt? Maybe your salty personality you shared <laughs> with some people. But this, word, this phrase in the first century, sharing salt, is equivalent to our phrase, breaking bread. So if you invited me over to your house today for lunch and said, hey, come over and break bread, what, what would I be hearing? Come over and share a meal, share a table fellowship. And this is what Sunalizo means. It literally means to share a meal, with the focus being on our mutual fellowship. Now Luke, in particular, has an interest in portraying Jesus at dinner. Luke likes to portray Jesus sitting at a meal, both in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Why is this? Why is this? Jesus is most often portrayed sitting with the Pharisees. They invite him over for dinner. They're like, Rabbi, come over. Let's discuss this. And, and of course he does. He obliges them. And if you read the dinner conversations, they start out, as of course they would, uh, they start out with high honor. Master, they call him. They call him teacher. What do you think about this? So they start out very cordial, but they usually end in a, in a serious dust-up over what the Bible means. What does the Torah, what is the Torah trying to really tell us about this particular uh, halakhic regulation? And so Jesus most often likes to share the truth during a meal. He likes to preach during the meal. And this is what he has been doing for 40 days now with the disciples. He's sharing salt. And he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom. And he does that for a couple of reasons. It shows that he's been bodily raised from the dead. Luke is very interested in showing that Jesus has been bodily raised from the dead. Why? Because apparitions, ghosts, don't leave empty plates. They don't. Only a person can eat the food on the plate that is put in front of them on the table. Okay? So Jesus has been bodily risen from the dead. This is a bodily resurrection. And the second reason he does that is because he wants to convey that Jesus taught in relational environments. Jesus liked to teach relationally. He liked to teach relationally. I want to tell you this. Uh, that... The gospel, the hospitality of the gospel, people become more receptive when we show them the hospitality of the gospel. This is a powerful means of witnessing to others. Never underestimate the power of a dinner invitation or a shared meal with people who don't think like you. So when someone comes to your door, as inevitably they will, 
You know who I'm talking about. And they knock. And they want to share with you the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Invite them into dinner and share with them the true gospel of Jesus right out of the Bible. Have them over. And have a cordial conversation. Don't get as mad with them as the Pharisees did with Jesus or Jesus did with the Pharisees. But have a cordial conversation and share the truth over dinner. Now, I know that some of you are doing that. Some of you have done that a lot. And you guys are the missionaries. You are Jesus' missionaries in this culture. And some of the stories that you've told me about the conversations over dinner or over lunch have just been awesome. And I'm telling you, this is how we can share the gospel with serious power, and that is to show the hospitality of the gospel. Jesus modeled this for us, both with his interlocutors, the people who are opposing him, and also his disciples. And then it says he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. So while he was at the table with them, he commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem, don't go back to Galilee. I know you're predisposed to doing that. You want to go back to Galilee, that's where you're from. That's where everything you've ever known is. Don't do that. The word that it uses here for command doesn't just mean to instruct. He could have used a range of Greek words that just mean to teach or to tell. But he doesn't do that. He uses the word parangelo. Parangelo. And this word means to command with force. It means to instruct with a commanding voice. So it means to instruct with a commanding voice. And what is he doing by doing this? He's reminding them who's the boss. He's reminding them that Jesus is not just your lamb who suffered on a cross and saved you. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your risen king. And when he issues a command, you are to follow through on it. So this is why such a strong word is used by Luke. Christ gives them the command, the command not to leave Jerusalem. Now, in the ancient world, Disciples of a recognized master usually had the opportunity, if they became what's called a disciple of the wise, or a wise disciple, if they became sort of the valedictorian of their class, they could then graduate, that's our word, not theirs, but they could graduate out of their little rabbinic guild, and they could be a recognized master. And what would happen is two rabbis would lay hands on that person and ordain them and recognize them, and now they would be the esteemed Pharisee, the esteemed teacher, who would go around to all the synagogues that dotted the region and be the guest teacher, the way Paul was, when you see Paul in the book of Acts. And we'll see him actually acting that way. But the reality is, the disciples are never to do this. The disciples are never to become their own masters of their own academy. Jesus is the master. They are forever and only disciples of Jesus. Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 23, he says, you are not to be called Abba or Father because you have one Father in heaven. He says, you're also not to be called Rabbi because you have one master teacher, the Christ. That's who your master teacher is. So they're never going to be masters They're forever and always going to be apprentices in the school of Jesus of Nazareth. And so this is a way that Jesus reasserts his lordship. He commands them to stay. And while he was at the table with them, he commanded them not to leave. But then he said to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. Now, when did we hear in the book of Luke him speak about it? Not much. 
there actually isn't a lot of teaching on the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke. There's a lot of interaction with the Holy Spirit in the book of Luke, but there's not a lot of Jesus' own teaching about the Holy Spirit. Where do we find it? We actually found it, find it recorded in John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapters 14 through 17. It's called the Farewell Discourse. And in that discourse, Jesus is telling them all about the Holy Spirit. And what he's saying is, it's actually a good thing that I'm going to the Father. They're sad. And he says, no, it's a good thing. Because when I go, I am going to send you the promise of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And he said, that's a good thing. You want that, right? So he's telling them all about the Holy Spirit. And he says, wait, wait for the Father's promise. Now, there are some things for sure, some things we need now. If your car is overheated on the side of the freeway, as mine was a few weeks ago, you need a tow truck ASAP. If your body has cancer that is threatening to metastasize and kill you, well, you need treatment now. If you wake up one day and the world's economy is trashed and collapsed and social environments are closed, you need a world-changing vaccine now. I don't want it now. I want it yesterday. I want it in my hand. I want it to be like Amazon.com. Buy now. I want it in my hand right here, right? That's how fast you want it. There are some situations and some circumstances that you and I find ourselves in that we need the cure. We need the answer. We need it now. In three days from, meal, uh, in three days from now, you will need a meal now, right? To stay alive. But there are some things we want, we need to wait for. There are some things that we say we need or we think we need that God knows that we need to wait for. Why? Because waiting matures us, and that's important to God. You see, while we wait for God to do something for us, God is most often doing something in us. While we are waiting for God to do something for us, God is most often doing something in us. And I I hate that principle. I wish that wasn't true. I mean, personally, I would like for God to just do everything I want him to do that I know I need right now. But sometimes God is waiting. Here's why. Because the work that he is doing to me from his perspective is more important than the work that he is doing through me. And I am focused on the work that he is doing through me. And I want him to continue to do it. But the scripture calls us to wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord. Look at what Psalm 27, 14 says. It says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. What happens when you wait for the Lord? What happens when you wait for the Lord is you gain courage. First of all, it is courageous to choose to wait, even if you still have to wait. But in your heart, if you lean into it, that takes courage. But then God is building courage in you in the process. There is a courageous spirit that the Lord is working and building in you in the process. So wait on the Lord. This is one of the hardest things for us to do. And then Psalm 37, 7, most difficult verse in the whole scripture to apply. This is be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Yeah, be quiet. Be still and know that he is God. This is the most difficult verse for me to apply in the whole Bible. The most difficult one. And I discovered this a year ago. For those of you who are new and just moved here, you just started coming to Christ Community Church, uh, you may not know, but a year ago, January 29th, I had a surgery that removed half uh, my left hemisphere of my thyroid. 
uh, because I had two nodules of papillary cancer on the left hemisphere of my, my thyroid. And at the time, the doctor said, well, here's the thing. Thyroid cancer grows really slow. Most of the people that they autopsy, they find thyroid cancer in them because that's how slow it grows. Most of you probably had it. I'm sorry to mess you up today, but, uh, but that, that's just a fact. You will develop it at some point in your life. And what they say is, he, and so what he told me was, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to do. If it gets aggressive, right now it's not, it could really mess you up. And I said, so what are my options? And he said, well, here are your two options. We can just monitor it. I said, well, what's the other option? He said, surgery. I go, okay, let's do that. I'm down. When? He said, oh, there's a complication though. That thyroid is sitting on top of what is called a laryngeal nerve. And that nerve is really big. If you could see it, it's really big. And when you take that half, when you take that thyroid off, if they accidentally cut that nerve, it will paralyze your vocal cords forever. You will not speak again. So I went, what? That's kind of scary. And he said, but it's never happened to me. He was a great surgeon. He had a good track record. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool. I said, what else could happen? He said, well, that, that nerve could get jiggled. And if it just gets traumatized a little bit from the surgery, you could go into a temporary paralysis. I was like, okay, I'll take my chances. So I came out of the surgery. The first few hours I could talk because of swelling. But then by the end of the evening, I couldn't talk anymore. And then I had lost my voice, speaking voice, any public speaking voice for almost three months. And I got to tell you, I mean, I say that, but good grief. This is what I do for a living. This is my calling. And I, I got to tell you where my headspace was. My headspace was every single day crying out to the Lord, crying out to the Lord to heal me because I need this and I need it now, right? I wanted this and I need this and I need you, God, to do this now. And God made me wait, fortunately, only three months, about three months. And then the other thing that happened to me in that period is I learned to be quiet. You know what I learned from God? I talk too much. I was talking to my good free friend, uh, Peter Shaw, afterwards. And Peter said, <laughs> some of you know him. He was like, I felt so convicted by that. I said, you should be. <laughs> I love Peter, man. But Peter and I are two peas in a pod. We just talk too much. And what I discovered in that two and a half, three months, here's what I discovered. I needed to listen more. I needed to spend more time sitting and waiting on the Lord and just hearing from the Lord. Because oftentimes what I needed to hear from God is just comfort. I just needed to experience that voice of comfort saying, I got this. I'm going to take care of you. You don't sweat this. You have faith in me. You keep your eyes on me. And that's what you need to. Whatever you're going with, whatever going through, whatever situation you find yourself in the midst of, be silent before the Lord. There are times when it's perfectly appropriate to cry out to God. But it was so difficult when you don't have a voice. I couldn't cry out to God. And it was maddening. So take the time to sit before the Lord. This is what Jesus is telling them to do. You can't do anything for me until I do something first. In this 40 days, there's a work in you that I want to do. And you can't do anything until you wait. You wait in Jerusalem until I pour out the Spirit. And this promise is from the Old Testament. It's not just in the New Testament. It's not just John 14 through 17. It's actually in the Old Testament. Proverbs 1, 23. Isaiah 32, 15. Ezekiel 39, 29. Joel 2, 28. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. It's 
It's going to be exciting. But look at Isaiah 44. God says this in verse 3. He says, For I will pour out water on a thirsty and dry land and streams on dry ground. And here's what that analogy means. I'm going to pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. God says, you've been dry for so long. Your heart has been fallow, compacted, and I'm gonna pour my Holy Spirit out on your progeny. You just wait when you see how the Holy Spirit is poured out on on your kids and on the nations. And so they are given the mandate not to leave. They're given the mandate to stay in Jerusalem until God has finished his work in you. Number two, let's talk about the means. So I can talk about the means. They have a mission, but what is the means for pulling off that mission? How do they accomplish that mission? Notice verse five, it says, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So what does that tell you? That tells you that John's baptism or water baptism is symbolic. You go down symbolically, you come up a new creation in Christ Jesus. But that symbolizes or that is emblematic of what has happened on the inside. That is emblematic or symbolizes the transformation that is going on inside of you. The Holy Spirit baptizes your inner man and you come up new. All things, the scripture says, are new. And you're going to need it because you can't carry out this mission without it. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So it's an immersion in the Spirit, and it's also the Spirit anointing us in power to do what he's called us to do. So this is the means of the mission. This is how we do it. The means of carrying out Jesus' mission involves essentially two things, biblical and theological instruction. Now think about how much of that they have received. They've been raised in the synagogue. Their parents were good homeschoolers because this is how they taught Jewish kids in the first century. They raised them in homeschool. And then they went to synagogue every week and they learned in synagogue. They learned at home. And now Jesus has been their disciple maker. He has been their Lord, their master, teacher for three and a half years. They have spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week with him, learning from his model, learning from his teachings. They have learned from him. They have been in Jesus' seminary. Jesus, your Bible college professor, can you imagine that? That would be amazing. And now for the last 40 days, they have done an intensive, an intensive 40-day period of the risen Jesus now appearing to them, reteaching them their Bible, teaching them where he is in the Old Testament and how he fulfills it and what their mission and their mandate is to be. So make no mistake about it, part of being prepared is the instruction. Part of being prepared is the training you need the, the grounding, the foundation of biblical instruction that you need so you can do what God has called you to do. But the other part is God's spirit. You have to be transformed. Your inner man has to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So what difference does the Holy Spirit make? Now, here's what I want to say. Okay, I hear people at times... Uh, I can give examples, I won't. But I hear people at times who say, I just, man, I just need the Holy Spirit to call me and anoint me, and I don't need all that Bible instruction. And I just want to say, yeah, actually, you need a Bible class. It might benefit you to jump into my Wednesday night theology class. I mean, it might help you. It's only eight weeks. We'll start up here in a couple Wednesdays from now, but uh, it's, it is a good time. That's a good class. That's a good way to get, just get grounded 
in New Testament theology. I mean, it's just, you need that, right? But what difference does the Spirit make, all things being equal? So if you have two people who have equal education, two people who have equal training, and one person is not born again, one person has not been transformed and baptized in and with the Holy Spirit of God, but the other person has. The person who has will make a difference. The person who has will have an impact for the gospel of Jesus, for the kingdom of God. No doubt about it. So what does the Spirit do? Now, again, I want to remind you, I wrote a book on this, little book on this. You should pick it up. It's all in there, but I'm going to give you just three or four things from it that the Spirit does. Three things you need to know. The first one is the Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Spirit convicts the world of sin. We have lots of conversations uh, every so often. Uh, the staff pastors, every Monday we meet together. We have a pastor's meeting. We talk about pastoral issues. I put them through their paces in terms of their theology. And uh, it's a good time. These guys love it. They, they show up with bells on. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are. They're, they're great. They're awesome. And uh, so we show up. I make them r- write white papers on the <laughs> subjects, and, and it's great. And uh, so, where was I going? Okay, yeah. So I was talking about, so this is what we do. Sometimes we get in these discussions where it's almost unbelievable that churches are not preaching about sin anymore. I mean, have you noticed this? Like, churches don't preach about sin, and they don't preach about the consequences of sin anymore. But this is, let me tell you, this is the first thing that the Holy Spirit does. The first thing he does when he shows up on your doorstep is to convict you, which means to convince you that you're a sinner. His first job is to convict sinners of sin. Look at what John 16, seven and eight says. Jesus said, but if I go, I will send him, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor. I will send the spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Why do you need those three? We need to be convicted of sin because you and I need to know that we have fallen short. But what have we fallen short of? God's glory. We've fallen short of the glory of God, which is God's righteous, holy standard. God is a holy God. And when we see our sin against the implacable cliffs of his awesome holiness, you will will be apt to repent. You see it for just how bad it is when you see it against God's holiness, against his righteousness. So we need the Holy Spirit to convince us of sin and the standard, which is God's righteousness and also judgment. Why? Because the unrepentant sinner who does not repent and does not acknowledge God's absolute holiness is bound for judgment. Judgment is the end game. And churches don't want to preach this anymore. But I'm telling you, we need to do this, guys. We need to talk about what the consequence for not repenting of our sin is. And it's the judgment of God. And it's coming. And Paul calls it the wrath of God. I like that word because I don't like wrath. But I do like that description because it's an apt description of what is coming. God is going to pour his wrath out on the sinner who does not repent of their sin. And embrace Jesus as their Lord. That's coming. And this is what the Spirit does. He convinces us of this. And then the Spirit convinces us of the truth of the gospel. Here's what I want to say. The Spirit does not preach the gospel. The Spirit doesn't preach the gospel. It's not the Spirit's job to preach the gospel. Whose job is that? That's mine. It's yours. 
Like, how can they hear unless somebody preaches? And how can that one preach unless he is sent? You and I should be, are sent into the world to preach a clear and accurate message of the gospel in the world. Clear and accurate and biblical. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convinces us of the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit shows us that this message, which is otherwise, listen, unbelievable. It's unbelievable. What am I asking you to believe? I'm asking you to believe that a dead rabbi in the first century got up out of the grave and is now the risen, declared Lord of the world. That's an unbelievable message. There is a natural psychological barrier that you and I have for a message like that. But what the Holy Spirit does is convince us, yes, that is true. That's the truth, and that will change your life. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 and 2 and 10. Here's what he says. He says this, when I came to you, Corinthians, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God. Now, what's the mystery of God? That's the gospel. The mystery and the wisdom of God in this context is the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of God. He says, when I came announcing that mystery to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I did not come with superior, loquacious rhetoric. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that's a metonymy. I hear some people preach this and they go, only thing Paul talked about was Christ on the cross. No, he didn't. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. They seem to be instructed about a lot more. Uh, Jesus Christ and Christ crucified is a metonymy. What's a metonymy? That's where I use one word to stand in for the whole concept. So if I say the pen is mightier than the sword, what does the pen represent? The written word, a written message. What's the sword represent? military conflict. So the pen is mightier than the sword. That's a metonymy. And that is how he's using this passage. He's talking about the whole suite of ideas that accompany the gospel, the gospel at its core and all the teaching that accompanies it. And so I came knowing Jesus Christ, his gospel. Verse 10. Now God has revealed these things, what? The mystery and the wisdom of God, which is the gospel to us by the spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So who is actually revealing the truth of this to me now? I have no hope of believing this message, no matter how clear it is proclaimed to me, unless the Holy Spirit is present to turn on the lamp of my darkened mind. And when he does, I can see clearly and I can believe. So this is what the Spirit does. He convinces us of the truth of the gospel. We hear it and he warms our hearts to it. Has your heart been warmed to the gospel this morning? Have you been warmed to it? Have you been convinced of its truth by the Spirit? Next, the Spirit is God's restoring, transforming presence. Get all those words. The Spirit is God's restoring, transforming presence. What do we mean by this? Well, he comes, yes, he does come to restore our relationship with the Heavenly Father. You and I are in estrangement. You and I are exiled from his presence. You and I are out of relationship, right relationship with him. So he comes as God's restoring presence. He restores us, but he also plans to restore us to our like new and better condition. So it's restoring and transforming. My uh, father-in-law and my brother both like to restore cars. And I'm fascinated by this because I, I don't like to do it. But I like the fruits of their labor. <laughs> Now, my brother, when he restores a car, he used to have this uh, Barracuda. I think it was a 71 or 72 Barracuda. 
And he bought it from quite literally from a little old lady down the street. It's a street right by our house called Camelback Road. I live in Virginia. That's what we call streets over there. And, uh, and we bought it from this little old lady who lived down Camelback Road. And my brother spent the next two, three, four years souping up that car so that it was something that it never was intended to be. I mean, like it just, it, it, he put so much money into that. So my brother likes to turn cars into hot rods, but my father-in-law does not. My father-in-law, by contrast, likes to restore them to original condition. I asked him about his truck, his 1946 truck. I said, are, are you going to soup that up? Make that a muscle truck? He's like, no. I'm going to restore it so that it looks just like it did from the factory, just off the factory floor. I was like, that's cool. And he did it. And in the process of restoring it, here's what he discovered. He had to transform it. He actually had to replace a lot of things with modern parts that actually work much better, like the electrical system. There were parts in it that he had to replace in order to restore it to what looked like its original factory condition. He had to actually transform it. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does not just want to restore us back to our garden state. He wants to make us, according to 1 Corinthians 15, in our resurrected bodies, in our resurrected state, impervious to pain, impervious to sin. That's, a, that's great news, knowing that you can never be tempted in your resurrected state. You could never be tempted by sin again. Isn't that great? So the Holy Spirit restores us, and he transforms us. And look at how Paul says he does it, 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is a fun verse. He says, we all, with veiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, his face, and are being transformed into the image, the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. So who's working on it? The Spirit. Who is doing this work? The Holy Spirit. Now, what analogy is he using here? What's the analogy? The, the analogy is Moses going up the mount, looking in the face of God, and coming back down, and he's so radiant that they have to put a veil over his face. And then over the next few days, next few hours, next few days, the glory departs, the glory dissipates. Now Paul is using that analogy in exactly the reverse. He's saying the person who has looked into the face of Christ, the person who has looked into the glory of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, that person starts at glory and then from glory to glory, they just grow until resurrection day. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing this. So the Spirit of God restores us. He transforms us fundamentally. And the Spirit also empowers us for mission. Even Jesus himself did not enter his mission. He did not begin his mission until he had been baptized both in water and from the Holy Spirit. Now, his baptism in the Spirit was a little bit different because he wasn't a sinner. He didn't need the inner transformation that you and I do. But when Jesus comes up out of the water, John's baptism, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Scriptures say that uh, John saw the Spirit descend like a dove and light upon him in power. And so Jesus, after 30 years of preparation, talk about preparation. I think he cares about that issue. And then He's baptized, he waits until he's baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit and then symbolically by the Spirit as a dove and then goes into his ministry. The Spirit wants to anoint us for mission. He wants to empower us to do our mission. This is why we need the presence of the Holy Spirit. And notice what they ask, verse six. Curious question. It says, Lord, are you, are you going to restore 
the kingdom to Israel at this time. What question are they asking? What are they asking? They're asking about Isaiah 61, which is an Old Testament prophecy about God restoring the kingdom to Israel. It's an Old Testament prophecy. If you go back, just write down Isaiah 61, and you go back and you read that chapter, here's what you'll find. God has an anointed servant. God's anointed servant is actually his royal son and is actually a prophet. And the message that the royal son and the prophet has is going to be to liberate captives. He's going to liberate the captives. Now, at the time, the captives were Israel, the people in Babylon. They were exiled in Babylon. And God's promises, this is his promise. When I do for you and in you what I promised I would do for you and in you, the world, the Gentile nations are going to see it and rejoice. And they're going to come in and be glad. And they're going to rejoice with you, right? So this is what they're asking. When are you going to restore that kingdom to us? Now, they have not asked the wrong question. That question is not wrong. Notice Jesus doesn't say you're wrong. (laughs) He doesn't say that. He says, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't say they're wrong. He said that is coming, but they're wrong about the referent. They're wrong about the referent. The referent of that kingdom is not them. It's Jesus. He is Israel that God is going to restore the kingdom to. Now notice what he tells them here. He says, no, but you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In verse eight, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem here in Judea and Samaria, the neighboring towns, and then to every corner of this world. So God anoints this messenger. So who's the Israel that God is going to restore the kingdom to? It's Jesus. Now, if you go back, a little study you can do on your own. It's Isaiah 40 through 66. Isaiah 1 through 39 is about the failed Israel, failed Jacob. And how did they fail? They disobeyed the Torah. They worshiped false idols. And then they embraced every kind of immorality that comes with false idol worship. And they failed Yahweh. Chapters 40 through 66 is about the new Israel. It's about the new Jacob. And what does he do? He obeys Torah He suffers at the hands of his own disobedient people as our servant, our shepherd. And then he rises from the dead. And what does he do? He has a remnant. And that remnant now becomes the new Israel in him. (laughs) That's what I say of 40 through 66 is about. That is a remarkable thesis for that book. And so when they ask, are you going to do this for Israel now? They're thinking about themselves. And Jesus says, you know what? That's coming. That's coming. When I come back, Read Psalm 2, read Psalm 110. The Son of God is going to split the eastern sky. He is going to step out of eternity and he is going to subjugate the nations. He's going to bring the nations in subjection. God is going to restore the kingdom to Jacob, to Israel, to Jesus. And all who are in Christ are going to enjoy that. But those who are not, are not going to enjoy that. For sure. What do you think the nation's response is going to be when Jesus splits the eastern sky and he comes out of another world and he declares himself the rightful Lord over every nation? What do you think their response is going to be? Probably real Armageddon. Like we use that term metaphorically, it's going to be the real deal. What do you think is going to happen in America for 75% of our population when Jesus says, oh, by the way, your constitution is gone. I'm now your Lord. I'm your sovereign king. People who like elected representatives, 
<laughs> We're not going to like that because Jesus isn't going to be your elected representative. He's going to be your sovereign king. And there's a percentage of people in this country who will take arms over that. You think this Capitol Hill riot, you think this Capitol Hill insurrection was a bad deal? You wait till Jesus declares himself the sovereign king over a republic. <laughs> you watch and see what people, non-Christian people will do. But he's not your elected representative. He's the king. And God is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He is going to restore the kingdom to his royal son, who right now we worship as the suffering servant who died for our sins. But someday he's going to return. And that kingdom is coming. So this week we talked about Jesus' mandate to wait. You wait for the spirit to move. Because God is a work that he's doing in you that sometimes is more important than the work he's going to do through you. And the means by which we accomplish that earthly mission is the restoring, transforming spirit of the living God. Now next week we're going to talk more specifically about the mission. Which is local, global, and it's apostolic. You do not want to miss that. Next week, we're going to talk about what it really means to have an apostolic witness. Who are the apostles? What is their testimony? And who has that testimony? You do not want to miss that. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for sending your son as the sacrificial lamb for our sins. And if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered to King Jesus, and you've never embraced his sacrifice on a cross for your sins, would you do it? I implore you, do it now. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring you conviction for the truth. You're a sinner. You're far from God. And without Christ, you're going to fall under judgment. Would you just confess your sins right now in this moment? And would you embrace the crucified, risen Savior? Would you embrace him? Would you confess him as your Savior and your Lord? Do it now. Don't walk out that door before you have. And Father, we want to pledge ourselves, Lord. We want to commit ourselves as a congregation. Between this day and the day you come and your kingdom is consummated. You, between this day and that. And God, we want to be a light in darkness. We want to be baptized and filled and empowered by this transforming, restoring presence of yours. And God, would you use us as a light in this dark world? We pledge ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?